Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, joined once again by Brianne Depish for our first episode of 2023. Brianne, hope you had a restful break and looking forward to a lot of Plugged In in the new year. I'm looking forward to that as well, Neil. And we are starting off with a bang, certainly. I am super excited about our first guest this year. We are joined by MIQ CEO, George Tabosh, whose company is really making some headway in the field of methane emissions reduction in a way that I think is pretty fascinating. They are using certified gas technology, which is something that I'm not going to lie, I don't know a ton about. And I guess we can just hit the ground running here. So George, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about what it is that MIQ does and what you've been accomplishing in this space. Great to be on the show. Brianna Neil, really honored to be the, the first guest of this year. The last couple of years we've at MIQ, we've experienced an amazing growth. And in 2023, that, that's going to keep going. So really excited to, to talk about that. You're correct. It, it is about certified gas. And why certified gas is then the next question. The essence of this is that gas, when being produced, transported to the final customers, there's a lot of leakage. Now, slightly simplifying some of the parts, but there's methane that is leaking. Methane is, is a form of gas that leaks into the atmosphere. And the fact is that methane, when it escapes into the atmosphere, is about 82 times more potent than carbon dioxide when it's released as is. And so even in, in some cases when it's per valve, per pipeline might be smallish uh, quantities. Because of this multiplier effect, it has a huge effect on global warming and climate change in the end. And the numbers are astonishing. Now, what we believe is missing is to how do, how do we address this? Because this is a happening in, in the oil and gas industry on, on a global scale. This is, this is everywhere. And the problem is, of course, that methane, as you can guess from, from those who are using gas in their homes, it's actually invisible. And you can at home, you can smell it because special specific elements have been put in there so you can smell it because normally you can't even smell it. So it's quite difficult to determine the methane emissions taking place. And so what MIQ has developed a concept, a framework so that we determine the methane emissions at these facilities. And we can then certify the assets of those companies. And then they can kind of clarify to uh, their buyers how much their methane emissions are and hopefully lower than the world averages. And that's what MIQ wants to achieve is, is to have basically on a global scale to have all oil and gas assets certified so that that transparency around methane emissions is going to drive that change. And it's really based upon getting competition then to come in for the companies to compete for lower methane emissions as the buyers will be asking that as well. And since last year, we're now certifying almost 20% of US gas production. And, and that's an enormous amount, by the way. Yeah. And you guys had a really pretty significant development in December, right? I believe you secured a pretty major contract. If you want to uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. That was really exciting what was happening in, in December. Several of the utilities on, on the East Coast, they've been buying certified gas, namely Washington gas and, and Virginia gas. And they bought MIQ certified gas from several producers in the US that we had certified during that year. And that that's a key step in changing this because what that is proving is the utility 
utilities and their buyers, their consumers have now got the possibility to credibly, transparently buy lower methane gas. And as a consequence, they, they are already contributing to that change. So for example, for, for Washington gas, the, the gas they're buying in, in that contract is saving the equivalent of emissions of, of 6,000 cars on the roads in a year. So the amounts are vast. And, and this is really methane emissions in the oil and gas sector is the low hanging fruit when it comes to climate change. We believe firmly we can address it this decade. And I don't know of any other climate initiatives that kind of can actually address at scale such vast amounts of what's causing partially climate change this decade. And, and we firmly believe methane emissions can. We can all do it this, de this decade. What is really driving this? Is it there's not really a regulatory regime pushing this? Is it consumer demand? Is it the producers who are welcoming this and wanting this? It's interesting that you've announced this big deal domestically. I would have thought the audience for this would have been more international, you know, in light of Angie canceling that big LNG deal as a result of U.S. methane emissions, I would have thought it was more of a global issue. But your work is clearly showing there's domestic interest as well. In the absence of sort of legislative or regulatory changes, what, what do you suppose is driving this interest commercially? All of the above. All of the elements you, you just mentioned here is not one driver. So in the case of Washington Gas and, and Virginia Gas, indeed, it is the, the domestic buyers. But they have the same criteria as an Angie would have. When Angie buys its gas in for delivery in Europe, that's not different than what we just announced at the end of the year for Virginia gas. It's just that there's a slight difference that for US gas to go across the Atlantic, obviously you first have to put it in an LNG ship. But conceptually, whether it's Virginia gas, Washington gas, or I'm now using RG as an example, those are buyers, big, large buyers of gas, and they want to know the provenance. They want to know the, the attributes of their gas. And, and one of the major attributes they're looking after at the moment is the low methane gas. But it's also the producers, because the overall methane emissions are very high. And, and maybe just to use that number overall, globally, the number we use is about one and a half percent of gas that's leaking. So of the production of gas, one and a half percent leaks. When the utilities, they buy much lower methane gas, we were in, in magnitudes of order lower than that one and a half percent. And that's the same for whether it's a European utility that is looking for or whether it's in domestic gas. But also some of the producers want to demonstrate that they're producing gas at much lower emissions than that one and a half percent number. So for example, several of our producers that uh, have certified facilities, they get an A or a B grade, for example, and a B grade in our case, that is a 0.1 percent of methane leakage. So it's getting closer to much closer to the zero numbers versus a one and a half percent number. And so you have the producers who want to demonstrate there independently, and that's key. It needs to be demonstrated. It's not the producer making their own statement clearly that, that who's going to buy that. So you need to have an independent such as us coming in and say, hey, we are going to look at, at that gas at that facility. And this is an A grade, a B grade, and so on. Not different than when you look at your fridges, there is grading on energy labels. It's a similar concept in a way. Just off the top of my head, two questions for you. You guys are among the first, if not the first in this space of the gas certification, certainly helping pioneer this in the US. My first question, I guess, is what makes you guys different than other companies in this space? 
That's actually quite a straightforward question for us. So we are not for profit and we're totally independent from the technologies that are required to do the certification. So obviously there are technologies required to determine the methane emissions and that can be the use of satellites, flyovers, drones, laser towers, super exciting technology behind some of that. But there is a variety of technologies around that. And we've created a framework that all these different technologies can thrive and they come from different kinds of companies. The vast majority, by the way, it's US-based. There's lots of established companies, lots of really good new companies starting in this space. So it's a, it's a very exciting space. So that that's the big part of our approach. And the other part is, this is like a standard. So our documentational, the methodology is available. It's out there on our website, www.miq.org. You can look it up, you can download the documentation there. And that creates the quality of why MIQ is robust trustworthy as a methodology because it's independent, it's transparent. And on top of that, interestingly, we also use third-party auditors. We are not the auditor. So from that perspective, we are very much like you would say, a financial standard. And are you guys the only company operating the US, in the US that does that? On that basis, we're definitely the only ones, yes. We, we've approached it totally globally because this has to be solved globally. So US is a big part of the methane problem, don't get me wrong here, but it's still only a part of the equation. So what we are seeing, what we're very excited about is in the US, this is kicking off. It's it's a market development. There's lots of producers picking it up. And this is big companies that are picking this up. So we've got very large US-based producers such as EQT and Chesapeake, but also Ascent, NNE, who are picking this up. Those are independent US producers that are out there uh, producing vast amounts of gas, uh, but also international oil companies. So BP, Exxon, Repsol, they're picking this up as well because it's based on a credible independent standard. And from there, we are now going to take this globally because everybody's got to adopt this. That's what's going to solve this. Yeah. And then thinking globally, LNG is obviously going to be huge in the commodities world in the next several years, the foreseeable future. You know, we're seeing Germany is building out floating LNG terminals. Yep. The US and the UK netted a major LNG deal late last year. Sort of what to what degree does this certification process really help with deals that the US is making with the EU and other European countries? Are they really relying on them? Is there a certain regulatory requirement that dictates they import a certain grade of gas with low methane? Basically, the short answer of it, currently, there is no regulatory, what's called an import standard to check on methane emissions or including CO2 emissions. You would need to develop a, an import standard for that. Now, we've designed MIQ with that in mind. Our whole approach is going to create data that is required to implement such a framework. Because how else are you going to determine the methane emissions when the cargo lands in Europe? You need to know all the steps beforehand, production, the boosting and gathering, it's called the pipeline, the LNG liquefaction plants, the ship, and then there is the regas in, in Europe. And that's what MIQ has developed, is across all these different parts of the supply chain, we have specific standards. And so we will certify all these different parts, and they can then be amalgamated so that you will know of a cargo landing in, for example, France or Germany or Singapore or Korea, take your pick, what the methane emissions were before it lands. That's very fascinating. And then my last question, I'm fascinated by 
by your transition just in your own career. You formerly served as director of energy at Goldman, you know, held uh, really high up positions at Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan, et cetera. What kind of encouraged you to make this shift in your own career into the emissions reduction sector? You know, yeah. obviously that's quite a leap. It's a fascinating leap and I'm loving it. Those were my days in, in London City, indeed, at Wall Street banks. That was also an energy commodity trading. Before that, I also worked for a, a decade at uh, BP, the oil company. And so my experience, my background is, is very much energy and commodity trading. I actually retired about five or six years ago after having worked for long periods in these different sectors. And then several years in, a former colleague of mine called me for, hey, there's this methane problem. And my first reaction was, well, methane is gas, I know. No, no, but it's the leaking of the methane that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, we went through it and it's like, whoa, this is this is big. This is really gigantic. And this is something that can actually be solved by the industry. Why is it not being solved? And that's when we came up with, well, you need that transparency. You need the what you measure is what you manage is kind of the mantra behind it. And, and obviously with, with the background in traded markets, I know how efficient markets can be to drive that change. And, and I've seen that in the early 2000s. We saw that change to for those of you who remember acid rain that was basically caused by sulfur in the oil streams. And that got taken out over time as the refineries upgraded. But that was also driven by markets, that change. And, and I've seen that personally on, on those prices influencing refining decisions. So we're doing the same here. So this problem is just too big. And my knowledge and background, we can make this work. And, and here we are several years later and in making that change happen for solving methane emissions. And to put it in context, what, what I really like about this is if we reduce the methane emissions in oil and gas, and again, we think this decade is doable, and we go to the targets where we think this industry can take it, which are very realistic. It's the equivalent in this decade of taking 1.2 billion cars off the roads. And that can be done this decade. Nothing comes close. And that's really what motivates me why I came back and we're going to do this. We're going to solve it this decade. There's lots of technology out there that can do it. And it's just a question of gluing it all together and, and making those markets drive that change. It's pretty impressive when you think about it in those terms about what the capacity that this technology has to really reduce those emissions. But one question I have is whether folks even want this technology to exist or whether it's going to be seen as something that will prolong gas usage both domestically in the United States as well as globally. And it's kind of an interesting conundrum. We're in a period in the U.S. where yep. we're on the precipice of this exciting energy transition. There are those of us like myself who are in favor of a measured market-based transition that emphasizes not just decarbonization but also reliability and energy security. But you have others who look at technologies like certified gas, like carbon capture and sequestration and say, this is just keeping the world addicted to fossil fuels for a prolonged period of time. Just curious if you've met mm -hmm. any kind of resistance from folks who say, yeah, on the one hand, we appreciate you're taking 1.2 billion cars off the road worth of emissions. But on the other hand, by giving a lifeline to gas, you're doing greater damage in the long run. What is your answer to folks who have that worldview? I absolutely get that viewpoint as well. The change that we need to do for the energy transition is a gigantic challenge for, for society on, on a global basis. I think one of the key points here is we are talking about an energy transition and the key is in the word transition. And also in our view, it's not either or, it's both. And so the energy transition is going to take time. That's just a fact. And I can come to late, later 
how, for example, the effect of Russia is kind of demonstrating that in a way. And I think a lot of people have also woken up to that with, with the hard facts of suddenly a large quantity of gas not being available anymore, what that is done in general. But on a wider macro basis, the energy transition is going to take time. And there are multitudes of scenarios we can come up with how long this is going to take exactly, but nobody can predict exactly what this is going to be. So our viewpoint is, whilst this energy transition is taking place, and we're absolutely in favor of that energy transition, by the way, we are in favor, clearly, to go to a non-fossil fuel world in time. But there are lots of steps to be taken for this very complex road to get there. At the same time, we must also address the methane emissions. That's why that when I talked about we can solve that this decade, that's key here. We are going to solve the methane emissions this decade. The energy transition is going to take longer. And for example, referring to, to some of the targets where people talk about 2050, for example, or 2040, those are longer dated targets because that again, that change to work through society to get the right technologies in place, the right pricing, security of supply, all these factors play a huge role. In the meantime, why shouldn't we address the methane emissions is our view. The prize is so large to address these methane emissions and the industry itself can clean that up, but they need that transparency, which is, which is where we come in. We've talked a lot about industry support for this, producers, consumers, and the rationale around it. Curious as to what the view of regulators is. You know, During my time at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, we struggled over what role regulators should play in tracking the GHG emissions mm -hmm. from natural gas pipelines that were under our purview, both upstream and downstream. Methane's more of an EPA issue in the U.S. regulatory scheme. Curious as to what the regulatory response has been here. Do regulators view it as greenwashing? Or is this a legitimate thing that you will get credit from, from environmental regulators, whether at the federal or state level? No, it's, it's a very uh, pertinent question. And the regulators are looking into this as well. And, and there is already a lot of regulation around as well. So for example, the EPA regulation does exist and several other countries have got quite advanced regulation when it comes specifically to, to methane emissions. That said, a lot of that can definitely be improved and doesn't exist in every part of the world, for example. And there's a lot of criticism them also on, on some of the older pieces of legislation, which at the time were actually very well designed, but as technology has moved on, are not necessarily up to date anymore. But the complexity around methane is to determine the methane emissions is going to take time. And to do that as a regulator is going to take time. And the view we are taking here is you need both probably in the end. We are starting on what's called a voluntary market basis. So indeed, like you say, this is producers, consumers, and the likes of us providing that framework. So we can get started. And it means we can go much faster. We started today with this and making this, again, go from the US to the rest of the world. In a way, what we're doing here is creating a, a precedent. We're creating good market practices that then can be adopted by the regulator. It's almost like we're giving them a, a helping hand. Do they want to adopt it later on? That is absolutely fine for us from, again, coming from the perspective of being a not-for-profit. And our, our purpose is to abate methane. So the regulator wants to pick this up. That, that makes absolute sense. I think we are coming to the end of our time here, but I did want to ask you, how much more important do you believe that your mission has become in wake of Putin's war in Ukraine that has absolutely upended global energy markets and really, really created this new landscape for international gas, LNG shipments and things like that? Yeah, I think the LNG world is obviously very well debated since the invasion. Now, it 
it, it was already a, a very large market beforehand. And again, MIQ has been designed totally with LNG in mind. Actually, we've got a, a former LNG trader on our team who's helping out with the design, for example. And that's key. The, the LNG is, is a linchpin here almost to connect to different market and the different consumers. And we haven't even talked about that. But for example, you also have low methane US produced gas then being able to demonstrate its credentials outside of the US. And that's via LNG chain, clearly. And so the invasion in uh, Ukraine has clearly changed the landscape. One of the ways I always find it very useful to look at the energy spaces with the, the concept of the trilemma is energy. There's three elements that are really key. One is the sustainability of the energy, full fossil fuel versus non-fossil fuel or coal versus gas, for example. Then the second element element is the pricing, affordability, that can be short-term or long-term. And then the third part is security of supply. And security of supply can also have two meanings. It can mean, for example, availability at any moment. So, for example, gas is, is, is quite a flexible fuel. You can relatively start up, well, a gas-fired power station more or less uh, any time. The windmill works when there's wind. So there is a security of supply issue. Security of supply plays also a role from a geopolitical perspective. And, and, and that's what's been demonstrated with the invasion in, in the Ukraine, for example, the security of supply, which over the last 20 years, from a geopolitical perspective now, was almost neglected. And that brings that one back in there. And so suddenly, everybody, whether it's the governments, consumers, companies, having to look again very much in detail at that security of supply element. And I think it might change some of the pathways in which we are going to execute the energy transition. And in a way, it's, it's a bit of a wake-up call there, I think, because obviously the, the quantities involved are vast. But that's why that trilemma is so true in a way. Because you, it's very difficult to square all three at the same time, all the time. Frequent listeners of the Plugged In podcast know that we like to mix up both serious and substantive debate with something colorful and light about our guests. And so in our closing statement, please regale our listeners with something interesting about George and or MIQ. I clearly can't talk about my earlier days as uh, working in trading jobs and what one was all up to. Clearly can't talk about those ones. As a sort of narrow or follow-up, I could ask, what was the worst and or least glamorous job you've ever had? Luckily, I escaped totally the doing the photocopying for everybody, which does tend to happen. I skipped that as I, as I moved from what's called lateral hire. So I started at the age of 30 in, in the Wall Street banks. So I avoided that whole part. Never dressed up as, I don't know, a costume character. That, that was me at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, well, I have definitely done those ones. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I can disclose those ones either. Okay, well then, Neil, what about you? In terms of the least glamorous job I've ever had, I was a bartender through law school. And that's hard work. It's not as glamorous as the TV show Cheers would have you believe. I did work in kitchen whilst I was uh, studying at university. And, and that was not glamorous, but I actually enjoyed that. That was like 11, 12 hours a, a day of working in kitchens, hacking foods and preparing for the chefs for a month in a row each time, uh, each summer. I did that. But I've very much enjoyed that. And actually, one of my sons has now gone in the, into chefing in, in a restaurant. So somewhere it must have rubbed off on, on somebody in the family. But yes, it's hard work. But I think that I always enjoyed that working in a restaurant you, you work with a team you're in the trenches together basically are the head chefs nice i've seen the show the chef makes it seem less so so i was responsible including for for doing all the prep for all the starters and one of them once a day somebody had to make all the mayonnaise for the restaurant now nah, but that was straight away 48 eggs having to be put in a mixer and, and and make a vast quantity of mayonnaise and the first day i left it i think 
think 30 seconds too long or something like that. That wasn't a happy, happy ending there that day. And I wasn't very popular that day. No mayonnaise on, on the menu that day, basically. That is just what I was looking for. Thank you guys so much. This has been a pleasure and a great way to kick off 2023, in my opinion. Thank you so much for being on the show. Great. Well, thank you for having me on the show and would uh, ask everybody, check, check us out on, on the web, myq.org and ask your utility to buy certified gas and, and get that change going. That would be great. Thanks so much again for listening to season three of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 